with the Word of God and uh, if we could turn to Romans chapter 3 uh, verses 21 to 31. Yeah. If you had your Bible there or your smartphone or whatever or you can read from the screen behind me. But now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what? Law. The law that requires works. No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, I'm very excited that you're all here today. Uh, I'm excited that we're going to be dedicating some children to the Lord later in this service uh, after the message. Uh, if you're a guest here this morning, uh, you're visiting, you're here to support uh, a family who's bringing their children to be dedicated to the Lord. I want to say a special welcome to you. Thanks for making the trip. I realize that coming to a church that you don't come to it can be a weird experience sometimes. So uh, thank you for making the effort today. Um, I also want to say, just if you're not familiar with this place, uh, restrooms down the hall. Uh, if the kids need to move around, that's fine. You can go outside. You can go in the creche. You can go wherever you want. You're not disturbing us in any way. We love children here, and we're very happy uh, for them to be kids. Uh, so welcome. We're so glad that you're here. I'm also excited that you're here because this passage of scripture that we're looking at today is life-changing. It's been described as the heart of the gospel. And if you're one of those people who is always saying, well, how does it work? <laughs> or maybe you've been wondering, I get that people get excited about Jesus, but, but why? This passage, if you allow it, God to speak to you through it, I trust can be transformative for you. Uh, before we begin, I just want to 
to thank Pastor Eddie for what he shared. Thank you, brother. That was truly powerful. And I want to tell you that the confidence to, to do that and to share that only comes from knowing how loved you are by God. It's the only place that comes from. Uh, it's not something that we readily do in our society to admit our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses. But when you know Christ, you realize something powerful happens in our weakness. So I invite you to uh, turn to the, the book of Romans. Um, if you need a Bible and you, you want one, put your hand up. Lionel, our fantastic usher at the back, he'll take one over to you. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called uh, Version, or just put in Bible app and, and it'll get you there. We are in the middle of a conversation that Paul, uh, the apostle, has been having with a group of house churches in Rome. And it's a conversation that is started by letter. It's a letter that he delivered through a woman named Phoebe. And so Paul is speaking through Phoebe to this group of churches, this group of Christians who are forming a new community. We've been looking at what it means to be a part of the people of God and what it means to, to be a part of this family. And we've been looking at some family traits uh, if you follow Paul from sort of the second half of chapter 1 in through chapter 2 and 3, you'll learn that everyone who is a Christian looks like a rebel <laughs> at some point. You learn that everyone who's a Christian uh, and comes into the family of God falls under God's expectation of righteousness. You learn that everyone who is a Christian and comes into the family of God comes with this chronic condition called sinfulness. And it's a power at work within us. And it leaves us condemned. But here as we get to chapter 3, verse 21 to 31, we see the glory and the beauty of belonging to Jesus Christ. We all who are a part of his church receive a joint share in his estate. And I think it's something fitting on a day when we've come to... Uh, dedicate sort of the next generation of, of children to ask God to bless them as they grow up in the faith. It's something wonderful to see that what they're stepping into is not simply the family tradition that maybe you inherited a few generations ago. It's not simply to fall in line with the beliefs of their parents, but what we're praying is that they would come to share in the same estate, to get the same inheritance that we have all received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Our passage is, uh, as we said, Romans 3, verse 21 to 31. And uh, just to sort of let you know where we were last week, last week we sort of asked this question, how do we account for our unrighteousness, our lack of righteousness? And we saw that sin's power in us, it condemns us to God's judgment. And as much as we might want to say that nobody's perfect and that's okay, the reality that we know deep down in our hearts is that nobody's perfect and that's not okay. There's something amiss, there's something wrong. But the good news is God came to make it right. 
Paul writes to Rome because he believes that everybody needs to hear the news about Jesus. The reason that he wants them to hear the news about Jesus is because in it, God unleashes his power to save. Now, that's a crazy statement that Paul makes. He's saying in the articulating, in the speaking, and in the sharing of this message, some cosmic, divine, majestic, almighty power is unleashed on us on the created world. As a part of that, he's writing them to remind them that God's wrath has been revealed against all humanity, all the unrighteousness of humanity, Jew and Gentile, whether you were a part of the promised people or you've just come to this party. And finally, to remind them that, that his children, God's children, are required to be righteous, and that's a righteousness to the core. It's not simply a going through the motions. It's not just saying, well, you know, I was baptized as a baby, or I was confirmed at this age, or so on and so forth, but, but actually not just going through the motions, but in the core of our being, to be a part of God's family and to be a part of his people means that we take on his righteousness. As Jesus would say to his disciples, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Which ought to leave us saying, um, how can anyone get right with God? That's the question Paul's tackling here. How? How does it work? How can anyone get right with God? And kind of as a subset, who, who really is included in this? Who's a part of his family? The big question to sort of bring these ideas together, and this is maybe another way of putting it, is how can God be both our judge and our savior? If you read the Bible, you see these two pictures, starting in the book of Genesis. You see these pictures of God as the authority. God as the one with the power God is the determiner of what is right and what is wrong, and God is the one who is holding humanity and all of creation to account. He's the judge. You see it in the garden. You see it when Moses is leading his people out of Egypt. You see it when God gives his people the Ten Commandments. You see it when wayward kings like Saul try to transgress and bend the rules in their favor, and God says, no, you can't do that. But alongside this picture in the Bible of God as judge is this picture of God as Savior. And so when Abraham, who's called to offer his only son, is ready to do that, God steps in and says, no, don't do it. When Jacob is forced to confront his estranged brother Esau, and as much as he might want to avoid and, and, and not face that confrontation, he, he finally comes to the place of confrontation. But before that, in that night, he wrestles with God. Only to find out that God had been intervening on his behalf. The same Moses through whom God gave the Ten Commandments is the Moses that God enabled to rescue his people out of slavery. We could go on and on and on. We don't have the time. You read the Bible, you see a picture of God as judge, and you also see a picture of God as Savior. And, and we're asking the question, well, which is it? And is it any way possible that he could be both? You see, what we do oftentimes to try to break down this tension is we, we lock on to one picture. 
You know, and we may say, you know what, I get that God is judge. You know, you're all here in church, you're probably very responsible, you know, citizens and, and, and respectable people, you know, you probably you know, pride yourself on sort of living a good life and, and you, you know, you get this picture of God as, as judge and you, and you say, yes, I get that. There, are, there is right and there is wrong. There is good and there is bad and I want there to be a, a judge. I want there to be a final accounting. I want God to put things right. Maybe you've been victimized or abused by somebody. Maybe you've been hurt and tormented. Maybe even by people who are in positions like I am standing right now. And you say, I am counting on the fact that God is going to be judge. But when it comes to actually saying, you know, this person's going to get mercy. the wrongs that this person has committed are gonna be forgiven. We recoil because we only have this picture of God as judge. Now maybe it's the flip side for you. Maybe you, you only see God as savior and, and, and so the, the concept that God like, is actually angry about sin or, or has wrath just doesn't really fit with your picture of God because God's always there when you pick up the phone to call him. And, and, and you get that, that you can go to God at any time, and you have a hard time imagining that God would, would be anything but loving. Now, he is loving. It's his nature. But what do we do when the scriptures put these two pictures together, side by side? God is judge and God is savior. What do we do? Which is it? How could it be? The answer is in Jesus. In Jesus, God reveals that he is our perfect judge and our savior. Come to the outline in a minute. As we prepare to go through these words, I recognize that when Paul, you need to recognize that when Paul is writing, he's, he's writing to try to settle an argument. He's writing to somebody who he needs to convince. And he's writing to somebody who's been throwing up objection after objection after objection after objection. And as we know from our own lives, when you get around people like that, oftentimes the only solution is to take them to court. And so for Paul, a lot of his language is courtroom language. But what I don't want you to miss in all of this despite the headiness, as it were, of some of this language. The glory of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it comes in the eight little words. There's eight little words in this passage. There's big words we'll talk about, but there's eight little words in this passage. And the sum of the transforming power of God is in these little words. So if you're reading and you're saying, oh, I don't know what that means, don't worry, we're going to focus on the little words. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help. We need you to speak to us. So would you open our eyes to understand the glory of what you've given to us in Christ. Thank you for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. How is Jesus's, how is, how Jesus is good news for us? As I said, God gives us eight little words. Uh, that can change our life. 
The first comes in verse 21, and the two words are, but now. But now. Well, I love Australian turn of phrase. As a culture, one of the most exciting things about coming to this country now living, this is my 13th year living in this country, one of the coolest parts for me is the way you guys use words. It is absolutely clever. I am, I am just, I'm gobsmacked and over the moon at how well you guys use language. But one of the hardest conventions for me to get around is when you ask somebody a question and they say, yeah, but, or yeah, nah, <laughs> Right? And, 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 and it's, it's great, right? Because you, you say, yeah, and you're like, oh, you're with me on this. And then, then it's like, but, but no, no. All right? Um, and, and I get that in, behind that convention is this idea that, that we're saying, look, look, you know, yeah, I see where you're going with that, you know, but in, in reality, I'm actually going to take a different position. And, but, but don't, you know, it's not a hard... It's not a hard no, get out of here. It's a, it's a yeah, but, you know, it's like that. Anyway, maybe I'm reading it wrong, but that's how it strikes me, okay? But when Paul says, but now, it's not a yeah, but. It's a but now. This is a fulcrum. You know what a fulcrum is? Imagine a seesaw in the playground, Right? The engineers are going, yeah, I know what a fulcrum is, right? Uh, a, a seesaw in the playground. The fulcrum is that thing in the middle that allows it to go high or low, one side to the other. Paul uses but now like a fulcrum in his thinking and theology. What he's doing is he's saying to us that there has been a significant change, a significant shift. So when he says but now, we need to just take a quick peek back at what was before the but. What was before the but is... Therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The verse before that, he said that this happens so that, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Paul has just really locked up all of humanity and said, you all are deserving of God's judgment. Now, if, you, uh, if, you, if you're like, I, I got to take issue with that, please go back. Listen to what we've been talking about the last three weeks. We don't have time to unpack that here. But Paul says, this is our state. But now. <laughs> but now. <laughs> so in these two little words. We need to recognize that that state of being condemned as unrighteous and sinful before God without hope, with no chance of getting off, with no excuse to be made, with no justification or rationale for our unrighteousness, but maybe there's another way. And now, interesting. Now is a time word. It's a temporal word. It's not then and it's, it's not what will be. It's, it, it's now. It's, it's a current word. So Paul is highlighting for us that, that actually we are in a window here. So maybe things aren't as dark as we thought they were going to be. And maybe there's a window of time. Something has happened. 
God has made a way for us in Christ. Paul would write to the Corinthians, he would say, but now is the time, today is the day of salvation. The wrath of God is being revealed, the righteousness of God is being revealed, but we have not yet hit the day of judgment. You need to be clear on that. We've not hit the day of judgment yet. What we're in right now is the day of salvation. And so in these two words, Paul signals a change. But now, you see, God has initiated, he's initiated a new moment in the sending of his son. In Jesus taking on flesh and standing in our place, he's initiated a new moment that we might have a new way, a new way for what? A new way to be right with God. That's what all of this has been about. A new way to be reconciled, a new way to be back in a loving relationship. If you had a broken relationship, the hallmark of a broken relationship is you can't go back. It's ended, it's done. But here there is hope. Because maybe that relationship can be restored. It's a new moment. It's a new way. And, and ultimately, and, and you know, for, for, for you Bible nerds, right, you'll understand what Paul's saying here. This is a new age, actually. We're under a new era. In a new era. The era of the Messiah. The era of Jesus, our King. So the first two little words, but now... The next two little words that can change our life is where Paul talks about a gift. A gift. <laughs> now, I'm a gifts person. I just, I slowly kind of come to, come to accept that. If you say to me, hey, what's the, what, you know, what's the most exciting thing about Christmas? I want to say Jesus, but in my heart, I'm like, presents, right? <laughs> like presents. <laughs> you know, it's my birthday. Presents, right? Uh, I'm a gifts person, okay? And the beauty of, the beauty of gifts is, is that it's, it feels like that, that one point in your life where someone just like hands something to you. And you're like, it didn't come out of my bank account, well, unless it's from my family member, <laughs> but like it didn't, you know, it didn't come out of my account. I didn't have to work for it, and, and it was just given to me. But now, there's a gift. There was a law, but now there's a gift. You see, the thing about a gift is, it's not initiated by you. I mean, you, you can ask, you can ask, you can beg, you can plead, but the decision to give the gift is not yours. It's God's. These are life-changing words. Paul's going to give sort of three pictures to describe what this gift is like. And and you need, to, you need to realize that when, when we talk about a gift, you might need to broaden your categories here, okay? 
Um, I was at a conference recently. It was a fantastic conference. And, and when, when you walk in, they say, great, here's your name badge. Here's your booklet. Here's your material. And by the way, we've given you a gift. And I was like, oh, this is so exciting. I've been given a gift. This is great. And I go inside, and there's all these, these nice boxes on the, on the chairs. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I wonder what's in this box, you know? When we opened the box, and we all got a water bottle. And I was like, okay, you know. Uh, it's a water bottle. You know, I'll, I'll add it to the collection, right? And, and we can, you know, we can tend to think if everybody gets a gift, then it's probably something chintzy. You know, it's one of those little antenna balls, water bottles, you know, something like that. So we need to broaden our categories here. God isn't saying, look, I've left, I've left a little keychain on all of your lives, and I hope you can pick it up and add it to your key ring, and you'll really be grateful for it. The picture of a gift here is, is broadened in really three ways. And, it, and each of those ways is because it's a different scene. It's a different setting. Now, the first picture that Paul gives us to unpack this, this gift is a courtroom. We've said Paul's using courtroom language. But here, the gift is given in the courtroom. And this is a gift of justification. To be justified means you are declared righteous. I want you to imagine a scene, your life is over. You have done in your mind some good things and you've done some bad things. You've been waiting for however long. And finally your name is called and you walk into the courtroom and you're asked, you know, please, sir or ma'am, would you just sit right over here? Yep. You get in the box and you sit there, and someone else you haven't seen before looks quite impressive, comes out, and they're carrying this big stack of books. And they lay the books on the table, and they start to open the books, and they say, okay, let's see, you're Jonathan Hoffman. Yep, that's me. Okay, all right. Oh, we left one back there. Can we get another one? All right, yep, bring it in. All the books get laid out, and they start going through, and they start reading everything you've done. And then after they've recounted everything they've done, they open the next book, and that's everything you've said, every word that's come out of your mouth. And after all that's read out, they get three more books, and they said, oh, here's everything you thought. And finally, the last book is, look, here's the things your heart was craving. And you're sitting there, and, and as the time goes by and all these things are read out, you realize that, that where you want to get to, this place of perfection and love and righteousness, it's not really available for you. And you say, look, <laughs> sir, can, can I please, can you just overlook some of that? And he says, I'm sorry. Because each infraction incurs a debt. You're actually accountable. You, 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 you owe something for each of those things. And as they mount up, you begin to look at the total that someone's calculating over there in the corner. And they hand you the bill and they say, you owe more than the U.S. debt. <laughs> which is in its trillions of dollars. You say, I have no hope of paying that back.
And just as the judge is about to call the bailiff over and say, well, you're going to need to put him with the rest of the others. Suddenly the courtroom door opens up and in walks Jesus. And he says, put that on my account. And suddenly, that big tally disappears. And Jesus says, actually, I'm not just going to pay it, but why don't you make him a joint holder in my account? So that my credit becomes his credit. What's in my bank is, is, is in his bank or her bank. You see... Suddenly, you now no longer are not in debt. It's not as if you've been brought back to zero, but you've been actually brought into the full, perfect, perfect, righteous standing with God. It's a courtroom. It's a gift. You go to the person, you go to Jesus, you say, but I can't pay you back. He says, you were never meant to. The second picture that Paul gives is a marketplace. And I know we wouldn't really think of these type of marketplaces, but in Paul's day, it's a slave marketplace. And these places exist today, don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm sure there are places where people are sold and bought today. But in this picture, Paul envisions all humanity as chained up. chained up, caught in their own sin and their own guilt and their own shame, and in comes Jesus, and he says, you know what? I'm going to redeem them. And, and the one who runs the market says, well, look, you can't actually pay money for these people. You see, what they've done is so core to their being. You see, they, they are actually here because they've sold themselves they didn't buy their way into this oppression. They've actually sold their way into this oppression. They've given themselves heart and mind and body and desire and affection. They've given themselves here. They want to be here. They've done things that merit being here. And so the, the marketplace owner says, no, you, you, you can't just pay money for them. And Jesus says, I'll buy them with my blood. I will spend my life for their life. And so now the gift is to be bought by the blood of the perfect Christ. And the third picture that Paul gives us is the picture of an altar. The altar was a very important place because when God said you wanted to meet with him, you couldn't just go wherever and say, I'm going to meet with God. Here I am. I'm in my McDonald's. I'm going to meet with God. I'm in my car. I'm going to meet with God. You couldn't do that. 
God had decided to put his presence in a certain place and that he could be accessed and communed with, you could have relationship with God in a specific place. But when you got to that place, you couldn't just walk into his presence. You see, if you just walked into his presence, you would die. You'd be obliterated. There's stories in the Old Testament of kings who, who got covered in boils because they walked in casually to God's presence. You see, before you got there, you had to cross the altar. You had to walk by the altar. And the idea of the altar was it was the place where you would bring your gift or your sacrifice so that you could be restored to God. And now I want you to imagine, as the Bible tells us, that the, the true meeting place with God is not in a tent in the Middle East somewhere. But the true meeting place with God is in heaven itself. And what Paul is saying is that you have received a gift because all of humanity could not bring enough animals or presents or money. You couldn't put enough things on that altar to unlock the door into his presence. You see, in the true altar in heaven... There is no sacrifice we can bring. But Jesus is a gift because he comes out from behind the curtain. He comes out from the holy place. He comes from God's very own presence and he walks to us and he climbs on the altar. And he says, I will be the sacrifice. I will open the way. But now, a gift justified, bought, through the sacrifice. And God says, all my wrath is now satisfied. His justice, his holy anger against sin is satisfied. Three scenes, the courtroom, the marketplace, and the altar. Paul's trying to tell you a gift has been given to you. What are the next little words? For all. Verse 22 and 23, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Verse 29 and 30, Paul's talking again with his dialogue partner. He says, is God the God of the Jews only? No. Is he the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised, that is the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. What is Paul saying here? The good news of Jesus Christ is that despite all that, but now there is a gift and it's for anyone Anyone. 
without distinction. You say, I wasn't raised in a Baptist church. Am I allowed to listen to this? Yes, you are. You say, well, but, you know, my ancestors, you know, maybe there was witchcraft in my background. You know, I have, I have Satanists in my family or, you know, I, I, you don't know what I do for work. You don't know how I've treated people. Or, well, but I'm from that race of people. And, you know, historically, that race of people have never been allowed anything. This is a gift for everyone. For anyone. There is no distinction. What we are saying to you is that God has leveled the playing field of humanity and he's saying it doesn't matter your starting point. It doesn't matter the conditions in which you were born. It doesn't matter if you came from a family that loved you and cherished you and adored you or a family that despised you and ridiculed you and mocked you and abused you. It doesn't matter. God's not going to treat you that way. The good news is that no matter what other hum humans might do to you, you can have a new identity in Jesus Christ that supersedes every other human distinction. It spans eras and millennia. This is for all, without distinction. It's for all without merit. <laughs> you see, you don't earn it. It's a gift, remember? And it's for all without boasting. You know, I confess, my heart is so prone to boasting. I work really hard not to do it in front of you, right? But in my heart, do you know the temptation I'm going to face when I walk out of here today? The temptation I'm going to face when I walk out of here today is to say, you know, Jonathan, you must be really, you must be really important that God would use you to do that, to give this message. Jonathan, you, you must be deserving of special treatment. You must be on a higher level, a higher plane. It's horrible and despicable. That's the temptation. It's the temptation of our hearts to, to put any sort of claim on ourselves that says, well, everyone else, yeah, but me, I'm different. God needs to love me. He should love me. Look what I do for him. Look at the ministries. Look at all the money that I give. Look, look at all the things that I've sacrificed for him. But it's a gift for everyone that it might be without distinction, without merit, and without boasting. Because who gets the credit for this? Not the pastor. Not the church elder or deacon or ministry leader. This is all of God, folks. From first to last. Finally, the last two words, by faith. But now, 
a gift for all by faith. Faith is how we receive it. And what Paul says so clearly here is that it is by trusting in Jesus Christ. It is active trust. You say, what, what does faith look like? G give me a picture of faith. Well, it's really hard to describe, but I'll give you two, two pictures. You're all exercising faith right now. You're exercising faith in that chair to defy the laws of gravity for your body. You're sitting in that chair. You might not think much about it, but can I tell you the reason why your body is not falling to the ground is not because of how strong you are trusting in the chair. It's not because of how confident you feel in the chair. The sole reason you're not on the floor right now is because of the construction of the chair, the chair itself. It's the object of our faith and the reliability of that. Our salvation and our justification and our forgiveness and everything depends on Jesus and Jesus alone. Don't get it twisted. It's not how you feel about Jesus, ultimately. It's not whether you're scared or confident, ultimately. It's only Jesus. But what does faith actually look like in human practice? Because I know some of you might be sitting out there, you're thinking, yeah, mm, sounds like a bill of goods to me. And if you find in your heart this sort of resistance that says, you know, I don't know if it's really a gift and I don't know if it's really, you know, what this preacher's on about. Jesus told a story of a man who had two sons. And the first son had plans, he had dreams, he had agendas, he had things he wanted to do, you know. He probably had YOLO tattooed across his back or, you know, his forearm or something. You only live once, right? And, and he goes to dad, he said, dad, you know what? I know you're a good man, I know you're a wise man, I know you're a rich man, and I know you're going to be generous to me. But what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to give me an advance on my inheritance. I'll take it right now. Up front, crisp bills, please. And he takes that inheritance, he takes that money, and he packs it in his bag, and he goes out, and he, say, he explores the world. And he denies himself no earthly pleasure. Some of us have done that. And he gets to this point where the money runs out, And he realizes, you know, I probably need to do some work. So he gets a job. But he's not from that region. He doesn't have good connections because he, he hasn't really been a, a nice charitable person. It's the only job he can get is feeding the livestock, feeding the animals, feeding the pigs. And next thing you know, his food's not really coming readily. And those pods that the pigs are eating begin to look pretty tasty. Now let me tell you what faith looks like. Faith looks like that son who's looking at the pig pods. He comes to a realization. He says, you know what? When I was back in dad's house, I ate a whole lot better than this. 
And even if I was working for my dad right now, he wouldn't make me eat the pig pods. And he got up and he took the walk of shame back home. That's faith. The man had another son. Come on in, kids. The man had another son. And this son, he was the goody two-shoes, right? He never left home. And when this son finds out that the other one's coming back and the dad is ready to receive him, the son begins to feel pretty angry. He's out in the field, he's, he's working, and he, he hears this big commotion going on. He comes back and he sees that his long-lost derelict brother has come home. And maybe some of you would have been like this. He sees that guy come home and he hears dad's killed the fattened calf. And he says, dad, what are you doing? This guy's, why are you celebrating this guy? And he looks around and he considers over the years of his life how he's been working so hard for his dad. He says, dad, you never gave me one of these. Look how hard I've worked for you. And the dad said, you don't get it. We had to celebrate it. Because he was dead and now he's alive. He's come back to me. But the other son is on the outside and he never came in. Faith looks like recognizing the gift that is being offered to you. And saying, I don't deserve it. I couldn't have worked for it. I couldn't have earned it. But you better believe it. I'm going to get out of the mud and the slop and I'm going to go to my father's house. Faith does not look like the older brother who continued to lean on his own righteousness. And I would ask you, who do you think knew God better? Who knew God better? The one son who'd been working for him all those years, did he know him better? Or was it the son who knew the character of his father, even though he'd done the wrong thing, even though he totally denied him, even though he'd walked away, he knew in his heart of hearts if he went back, he would receive him. Who knew the father better? So what happens? Paul has given us this section in these eight little words. But I want you to ask, what happens when God speaks these eight little words to me? I suggest that you and I must decide whether we believe this is good news or not. It doesn't matter if you've heard it for the first time or not, but everyone needs to have a but now moment. You need a but now moment. You need this moment, whether, whether your story is the story of the prodigal son or whether it's, it's your own story, you need to have this moment where you say, whoa, I'm in a bad situation, but now I don't have to be. You need a but now moment. The Bible calls that repentance. We need to ask, am I ready to receive the gift of righteousness? Do I want to be reconciled to God? We need to ask ourselves, Am I ready to forfeit all my qualifications for Christ? Am I ready to be known by nothing else than simply his?
And finally, am I ready to surrender my life to Christ in faith? You see, the prodigal, he had to decide where he wanted to live. Whose house did he want to be in? Did he want to be in his own house or did he want to be in his father's house? We need to face a similar decision. If all that is a bit confusing for you, can I just remind you of this? God loves you. He loves you. He truly does. He loves you so much that he chose to satisfy his own wrath by giving his own son so that he could offer you the gift of peace with him. God loves you so much that he will save you on his own without your help if you would only trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Do you feel the power in these words? The power to create a new moment. The power to restore you to righteousness with God. The power to break down every human barrier. If you do, God is only asking one thing of you. He's just saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Let's pray. God, you're the giver of every good gift. Would you, by your grace, restore us to peace with you today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.